for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay. You all can still be seated. Okay, you want to, I shouldn't be telling you this right now. I shouldn't be telling you this right now. There's no reason for me to tell you this right now, but I'm going to tell you this now anyway. Uh, the reason that Holly's microphone didn't work is because we share a channel. And I went to the bathroom just now, number one, and my microphone was on. Now, I was spared a crisis because she had hers on too, so the, the signal interfered and we didn't have to hear it. But sadly, this is not the first time that this has happened to me. Some of you were at the old building, and uh, I, I hydrate a lot on Sunday mornings and uh, have to use the restroom a lot because I haven't trained, you know, Monday through Saturday to drink a lot of water well. And so in the middle of music one Sunday, this is very, very true, um, I went to use the restroom again, number one, and halfway through, I was like, huh. I wonder if my microphone is on, and I turned and I looked and I saw a green light, and I was like, oh my goodness, and so I came in and I found Emily, my wife, and I said, I just went to the bathroom with the mic on, and she goes, that's what that sound was? <laughs> I thought someone was doing like a rain stick effect or something like that. No, that was your husband using the bathroom. All are, you're welcome, you're safe. <laughs> You haven't done worse than I have in this church. Uh, well, I'm so delighted to get to be together. Uh, today we're, we're talking about a passage of scripture that is likely familiar to many of you. Uh, it's, a, it's a scripture that lots and lots of people uh, have read. In fact, in like 20, I think it was in 2018, 2019, it was verse 6 was the verse of the year. Uh, version. many of you probably have the version app. Uh, version tracks the most read and highlighted verse of, uh, of every year. And then at the end of the year, they share, here was the verse of the year. And it often gives you a kind of an indication of the spiritual and emotional temperature of, of uh, like Bible reading people in the world. And so if we go back to 2015, the most read passage of scripture in 2015 was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which some of you could probably say with me. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your under understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That was 2015. In 2016, it was Romans 8:28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In uh, 17, it was Joshua 1:9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then 2018, it was Isaiah 41:10. It says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. 
Uh, in 2019, it was Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. Uh, uh, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, Philippians 4, 6. And then last year, it was a repeat of Isaiah 41, 10. And it's kind of interesting if you were to track some of the events of each of those years and then like, have it correspond with the verse that people selected, you begin to make some interesting observations. One of the things that you begin to recognize is, is that in every year, in every place, people are grappling with fear and anxiety. And we could probably go back many years before 2015 and find similar or recurrent themes, or even if we just did man-on-the-street interviews with people in the church, we'd find that fear and anxiety play a perennial role in our lives. That's one thing we see, certainly, based on these scriptures. The other thing that I intuit from the, the theming of those scriptures and their recurrence over the last five years is that the feelings of anxiety and helplessness are going up. The more and more people are feeling like life is out of control. There's a word that I think describes the reason, and it's disequilibrium. Disequilibrium. Things that were stable don't feel stable anymore. Things that were predictable feel less predictable now. And as a result of that disequilibrium, we feel stress and anxiety. And this is something that we have to cope with. Now, we can either be defeated by it and, and given to despair and discouragement, as many of us do when we go through kind of seasons of this. I think the invitation as followers of Jesus is to invite the Holy Spirit to help us to grow in the middle of it. Not to be defeated by it, but to grow in strength in the middle of it. Uh, Henry Cloud says, maturity is meeting the demands of life. Immaturity is asking life to meet your demands. And while we can't make life uh, predictable... While we can't control for all outcomes, uh, we can do our part to cooperate with God to grow in strength. Here's a rare sports story. I never tell sports stories, but there's a story of a football team and the quarterback threw the ball really, really hard. And the wide receivers and the tight ends start going to the coach and saying, look, he is throwing the ball way too hard. Can you get him to soften up? And so the coach goes to the quarterback and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to throw the ball even harder, and we're going to train everybody to get stronger, or we're going to find some other wide receivers. And the story illustrates the concept of adapting to strength. Uh, if, if I could turn down the heat or turn down the temperature, the pressure that each of us feel, I would certainly love to do that, but I can't. Lacking that skill or ability, we want to call one another to grow in strength and maturity. And the way of Jesus invites us to do just that. Today, uh, we're going to recognize that, that fear and anxiety are part of life. A fear and anxiety are something that God is not indifferent to. And even Paul, the author of the letter that we're reading, uh, struggled with anxiety. If you go to the end of Philippians chapter 2, he's talking about Epaphroditus, this, this uh, young man that he really cares for, who the Philippians sent to care for Paul. And he had a difficult time, and it's causing, Paul admits it's causing him anxiety to have Epaphroditus here. He wants to send them back so that they'll worry less and he'll have less anxiety. Uh, God's not indifferent to our anxiety, and we as Christians are not invulnerable to it. And finally, I want to recognize that God wants to equip us to deal with it. We're not uh, helpless. What we need is some good ways of thinking about anxiety and worry. Uh, we need some uh, equipping to know quite how to deal with it. And we need a strategy for growth. We need a willingness to be trained. 
Now, because this passage is so familiar, many of you probably have most or all of it memorized. It makes it actually a little more difficult to teach because familiarity breeds contempt. You assume that you already know all of the things about it. So my hope today is to come at the passage in a little bit of a fresh way. I've paraphrased each of the verses to try to reflect what I understand to be the original intent of the passage. So we're going to go through it verse by verse. So here's verse 4 we just read. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Which I don't know about you. On on a surface reading, I don't find this to be an especially helpful command. It's like when you're in a bad mood and someone says, get over it. Does that often help you to get over it? Or if they say, like, just be happy. Well, like, like you can't when someone's commanding you to be happy, which is a little bit how this command comes across. Well, just be ha- rejoice, like choose to be joyful. And, and there's a degree to which joy is a choice or an exercise of the will, but be happy is an instruction that doesn't usually get the job done. But in the Roman world, this command to rejoice would carry with it a connotation of public celebration. And so rejoicing in Rome would have been associated with hosting these great festivals and shows in honor of the gods or in honor of Caesar. And because all of the Roman world would be rejoicing in the glory and the power and the strength and the splendor of Rome, just the grandeur of the whole thing would inspire confidence in Rome. Seeing all of these people publicly celebrating the strength of your empire was something that inspired national confidence and pride. It made you think more of the empire to which you belonged. And it's this sense of public celebration and of of thinking bigger thoughts about God that Paul's really getting after. I've paraphrased it in this way. Think big thoughts about God and celebrate him. Uh, You know, I, I like, like most of you, struggle with anxiety at times, struggle with depression or depressive tendencies at times. And I find that I'm most inclined to fear when I'm trying to think the biggest thoughts about myself or I'm thinking about myself just too much and not thinking nearly enough about God. When I behave as if everything is on my shoulders, which is my default, I'm most inclined to fear and anxiety. And the problem is if if my God is small, my problems feel really, really big. But if you begin to think big thoughts about God, those problems begin to be put into a right-sized perspective. I love the moment in Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, where Aslan, the lion, the Jesus-type figure, is talking to Susan and says to Susan, you've been listening to fears again. Forget them. Let me breathe on you. Do you feel brave again? In, in getting to, to take in the, the greatness of our God, we begin to have a right-size appreciation for our problems. Paul had anxiety about the church. I have anxiety about the church. Uh, in the first half of this week, I was in the fortunate or the unfortunate position of struggling with anxiety and then preparing to preach about not struggling with anxiety. And, you know, like the first sermon a preacher preaches, like if they're to do it with integrity, ought to be to themselves. And so I started to think, what does it look like? In what ways am I listening to fears? In what ways am I giving too much attention, thinking big thoughts about my problems or the uncertainty of the future? And in what ways might the Lord be inviting me to think big thoughts about God? 
And so I thought, okay, I'm going to tell other people to do this. I have to do this. And so I, I began to think, what are passages of Scripture for me that help me to open up my eyes and think bigger thoughts about God? Think bigger thoughts about, like, the responsibility of leading a church or being part of a church. Well, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Good. God's at work in me. He's doing the stuff. Okay. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay. God's carrying on the work. And then from John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Okay. I am not making this up on my own. I was chosen. You were chosen. He has plans for your life. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. He's got work that he picked for you to do. And, I, and I'm not being dramatic. Uh, I feel like my eyes widened. Just in beginning to think about this is God's work. This is not my work. I'm a steward of it. I'm a, I'm a co-laborer. But this is God's stuff. And thinking bigger thoughts about God, I felt like my eyes were opening up. Thinking big thoughts about God naturally leads to rejoicing with the realization that it is not on you to fix everything. And that's really good news. Leads to the first part of verse 5. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Kind of a funny command. It feels like how does A lead to B here? Let your gentleness be evident to all. I think there's something about the power of gentleness in a very cruel and mean world. To be a gentle person, uh, to, to recognize that everyone is going through difficulty. Everyone in this room is trying their best. And it's easy to get frustrated with ourselves. It's easy to get frustrated with one another when we adequately appreciate everybody's given it their best. Most people in the world are going to behave in ways that are indifferent or even cruel. Let the followers of Jesus be gentle. I think there's a power of gentleness. But there's more to this word than, than uh, gentleness. It's kind of a gentle generosity. Or maybe you would even use the word, as the New English Bible does, magnanimity. Let your magnanimity uh, be evident to all. To be magnanimous is to be generous and forgiving, especially toward rivals or toward people who are weaker than you. The Latin word magna means great, and animus has to do with your soul or your intellect. It's the idea of be great-hearted. Let your great-heartedness, your great-souledness be evident to all. Let your great-souledness, your magnanimity be on full display. I think often of Proverbs 19, especially in parenting. A person's wisdom yields patience. And this is the part that gets me. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Last week, if you didn't hear the message, we talked about uh, seriousness as being one of the compounding issues in dealing with conflict. Seriousness is kind of like if you have your car running and in your, you're in the garage and then you shut the garage door. It's having the door shut that's going to make this, this situation potentially deadly. And it's the seriousness that we can all be infected with that makes things so much worse. Yet to be magnanimous is to be the opposite. It's to have this generous heart. It's to be playful. It's to be not so easily offended. I want to be that way. I think there's a connection between thinking big thoughts about God. When you think of meditate on scriptures, God has given us everything we need for life of godliness. Man, if we begin to meditate on the greatness of God, what he's doing in each of our lives, does it not have this natural, expansive effect in one's heart and worldview 
their soul. There's a, a certain generosity and magnanimity, I think, that comes with thinking big thoughts about God. I want to be a playful person. I want to be a great-souled person, a magnanimous person in my relationship with Emily and God help my poor children. Last night at the kitchen sink, uh, I was doing the dishes, and Emily said to me, hey, this was a good day, wasn't it? I said, well, I lost my temper with the kids twice. And she said, John, 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 if losing your temper with the kids is the thing that makes a day bad, you are never going to have a good day. And <laughs> neither am I. I want to be magnanimous. Maybe it doesn't start with be magnanimous. It starts with, man, think big thoughts about God and let that expand you. The second half of that verse says, the Lord is near. In the middle of our world where at times God can feel so remote, our problems feel so real, it is good news to be reminded, the Lord's with you. God's with you in the middle of what you're doing. Andy, in teaching and going into the school, he's with you in the middle of that. You know, in managing, you know, navigating singleness or navigating university, Tucker going back into the classroom, uh, navigating retirement. In the middle of what you're doing, God's with you in the middle of it. He wants to be your companion in difficulty and in conflict and fear and exhaustion and in the joys of life. He's with you, which leads to this next verse. Don't be anxious about anything. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Uh, anxiety, it's, it's interesting. I've been noticing uh, watching friends be really careful about how they use the word anxiety, especially around children. And it seems to be because anxiety is becoming something so much more pressing. I have a, a really good friend whose who's eight-year-old daughter can't go to sleep at night because she struggles so intensely with anxiety. So there's, a, there's a, the modern sense in which we use that word, but the biblical sense in which this word is being used is tied to distraction or tied to uh, the idea of being pulled in opposing directions. So I'm trying to give my attention right here, and it's like squirrel, like it's, it's distraction. It's, it's like I, I'm really trying to be in this conversation, but my mind starts to worry about, you know, other things. I don't feel, some of you in this room are much better dads than I am. Forgive me for talking about parenting so much this morning. One thing that I do well is read to the kids. Lots of things I do poorly. One thing I do well is read to the kids. And every night, uh, the first up I is I read to Gideon, our three-year-old, almost four-year-old. And Gideon picks his stack of books. And I just find that my sleepy he comes in hard at 6.30. I get a second wave about 8.30, which is not when I need it. But at 6.30, I am just so tired. And so Gideon and I sit down, and I kind of slouch into the chair, and I've got the books, and I'm good as long as I'm focusing on the words. And sometimes, you know, you're reading or you're doing an activity, and you can be actually physically doing it, but your mind is just elsewhere. You're on autopilot. And I have found very predictably and comically that in reading to Gideon in particular, that I'm good as long as my brain is on the words that I'm saying. And the second my brain drifts, I'm literally asleep. But my mouth doesn't always stop. And I can't explain how this happens. I, I am I'm reading to my son, and then I'm instantly asleep, and then I begin saying out loud what's happening in my dream. And I am reading to Gideon, you know, like, like the character did this, and then I know that I'm still talking, but I also know that I am gone. And Emily will come in the room and say, what did you just say? 
Evidently, in my sleep a couple weeks ago, I was summarizing the plot of the Silmarillion, which is like the mythic like, epic behind the Lord of the Rings books. I have a very active imagination. But I'm reading to my three-year-old this very basic book, and when, I, when I'm like paying attention to the words, I'm good. But as soon as my mind drifts, I'm asleep and I'm dreaming. And it's true. In a very similar way, many of us are doing well. Like we're, we're, we're focusing on the Lord. We've got our, our things in order. But the second that anxiety starts to turn our attention, we're asleep to God and we're awake to our nightmares. The second, like, we take our eyes, it's like Peter getting out of the boat. As long as he's got his eyes on Jesus, he's good. But then he starts noticing the wind and the waves around him, and he begins to sink. And that's what each of us do. This is what anxiety is. It's like, oh, you think your day is going great? How about this thing that you should be worried about? And, like, God gets small. We get asleep to the reality of God who's working in our lives, who's chosen us, who's got work for us to do. We're asleep to God, and we're awake to our worst nightmares. This is what anxiety does. When we're anxious, we're we're distracted, we're being pulled away. Now, Paul is not saying in this passage that you don't have things to worry about. I don't know if it's possible not to worry. And we know even in this letter that Paul had his own worries. It's, it's an admonition, however, to resist letting your attention drift from big thoughts about God to big worries about this world. Here's how I paraphrase the passage, getting at the sense of distraction. When he says, do not be anxious, it's defy. It's a word of like fighting back. Defy distraction. Resist being pulled apart in opposing directions. Instead, take everything that concerns you straight to the Lord. Uh, give thanks, make requests, talk to Him. Like all, all those things that are like turning your attention away, take them. Like, okay, Lord, I need to talk to you about these things. It's dealing with the anxieties in the presence of God who loves us. Take all of those things that concern you, the, the joys, the frustrations, take them straight to the God, to God, defy distraction. One commentator that I read this week said, anxiety and distraction is the only tool the enemy has to mess with Christians. And I don't know if that's completely true, but I do think that one of the chief aims of the enemy is to distract us into prayerlessness. To distract us into prayerlessness. To distract Christians with worry. To distract Christians with busy, or in my case, to distract Christians with thinking too much about the mechanics of prayer. I think this has tripped me up for 15 years, is, uh, is trying to figure out how prayer works. Uh, part of my story is, is grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, and when I was 16, 17, 18, you know, we're all trying to get red in the face, praying with intensity, and I started to question, am I doing this as a weird kind of social pressure, or do I actually feel this intensity? And so I started to kind of withdraw and, and turn within, and for me, I recognized, I think I'm trying to, like, coerce something into reality. And then I started, you know, studying Bible in undergrad and reading theology, and I started to get a little too fancy, and I wanted to make sure that when I was praying that I was getting my theology right, because then the prayer would work. And I grew fear of charisma. I, I grew fearful of zeal, and it just complicated my prayer life for a good number of years, trying to think too much about how to pray. And I think it's one more of those kind of things. Whether it's anxiety for you, worries, busyness, or thinking too much about how prayer works, I think one of the enemy's chief goals is to distract us into prayerlessness. 
Stephen Pressfield wrote a bunch of novels, and he's also written a couple of books about writing that I really like. And he says, uh, one of the main things that real writers know, one of the secrets that real writers know that wannabe writers don't know, is that the hardest part is not the writing. It's sitting down to write. Everything that keeps you from writing, he calls the resistance. And I think in a similar way, anyone who, pray will, who prays will tell you, the hardest part is not the praying, it's sitting down to pray. And I think the enemy wants to keep us from talking to the Lord at the most basic level. And we do anything and everything to cope with the difficulties of life, but not the one thing that's needful to talk to the Lord about the things that we, are, that we need, the things that we're feeling, the things that we're thinking. And Paul says, resist being pulled apart. Resist drifting into sloth and fear, being awake to your nightmares but being asleep to God. Resist this. Defy it. Take all that you're thinking and feeling and with thanksgiving, express it to the Lord. Now, to some people, perhaps especially if you've grown up in church world, this advice to just pray about it feels overly simplistic. This advice is a bit, little bit like when you got hurt as a kid and your dad, my dad, said, just rub a little bit of dirt on it. So like, well, just rub a little bit of prayer on it and it should be fine. And this is, can come across as a religious non-solution. And for some people, I can understand the hesitancy or the, like underappreciating the strength of this point of just taking stuff to God in prayer. But I will also say that people who never pray are ill-positioned to properly evaluate the efficacy of prayer. People who never pray are just not positioned to say whether that's a useful or a helpful thing or not. It's kind of like when I'm in those rare grooves of exercising on a regular basis, I feel so good. And there's no amount of feeling good in those situations. I, there's no way to bottle it so that when I get out of the rhythm, like that I could like drink the solution. We're like, oh yeah, it's totally going to be great. It's worth getting over this hump. When, you, when you're out of that rhythm, it's such a big mountain to climb. In a similar way, when you, when you don't ever pray, it's like just pray. Like, I want to, like, tell me to go to counseling. Give me a secret. Give me some white lightning that's going to fix stuff now. Paul says, don't be anxious. Like, take stuff to the Lord in prayer. But if you never pray, you're ill-positioned to properly evaluate whether prayer is going to make a difference in your life. The only way out is through. John Tyson said, pray what you've got. I think that's really good advice. I think in beginning to process all of the joys and frustrations and everything of life, just start praying. Just start praying. I don't mean think about prayer. I mean say words to God sitting in your car. Uh, Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley, uh, you know, the founder of Methodism, the Anglican priest. Susanna had so many children, she couldn't get a moment to herself. What she would do is she would lift up her apron and put it over her head. And all of the kids knew when mom is doing this, don't mess with her. She, she just needed to talk to the Lord, say words to God. Should you still get counseling? Probably yes. Should you still take your medication? Yes, you should. Should you pray? Yes, you absolutely should. And Paul ends with this promise. Do this. Defy distraction. Take your joys, your needs, your requests to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or as I said, in God's holistic well-being and restfulness, his inexplicable shalom will keep your heart 
and your mind safe through Jesus. It struck me last night in thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan that Paul is, is writing this passage not as just like a member of the walking worried who has middle class frustrations, but he's writing this as, as, as one who has suffered a guy who's been beaten to a pulp within inches of death on several occasions, a guy who has been shipwrecked, a person who is like enemy number one in numerous cities, a guy who's gone without food, without shelter, you know, without clothing, who's been imprisoned. This is the durable advice and wisdom of someone who's suffered for Jesus, not the flimsy sales pitch of one who stands to gain by winning over a couple of converts. It's the counsel of someone who has seen the worst of the human condition and yet been able to preserve an inner lightness so that he can encourage other believers, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice, 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 rejoice. It's the insight of a practitioner. And so if it's good enough for Paul, if it's good enough for our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who face many more threatening pressures than we do, it's good enough for us. This is durable wisdom. There are lots of things that we could pray about and should pray about as you do it. Think big thoughts about God. Let Him fill you. Let Him stretch your heart and your mind. Let Him open your eyes. There are resources that abound. Think big thoughts about God. Let your magnanimity be evident to all. Defy distraction. Keep your eyes on Him. Take your worries to Him. Take your gratitude to Him. Ask Him for what you need. And the good news is that even as we pray to him, he is praying for us. That's one of the most thrilling pictures in Scripture for me, is that even now at the right hand of the Father, uh, Jesus is pulling for me. And this is the vision of Jesus being our mediator, even Jesus being our intercessor, is he takes these, like, weak, (laughs) I'm going to not say bad words, he takes these terrible, weak prayers of ours, And he cleans them up, and he's like, Father, this is what they're getting at. Help them out. This is what a good mediator does. Here's what he's getting at. He takes our flimsy, like lacking faith prayers and cleans them up and offers them to the Father on our behalf. Jesus prays for us. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit prays for us with groans that are deeper than words. And so when we pray, we pray in safety and security. We pray to the Father who loves us. We pray through the Son, Jesus Christ, who's advocating for us. And we pray empowered and prodded along by the Holy Spirit. We pray in security. So pray and just start praying. Think big thoughts about God and not big thoughts about your problems. This is not escapist. This is not being in denial. It's actually being a realist, taking all that concerns you to Him who loves you and trusting that he's working for your good and for mine. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out on our church a spirit of prayer. Would you liberate us, Lord Jesus, from feeling the need to emotionally manipulate ourselves or coerce ourselves? Liberate us from the baggage and the burden of trying to pray like professional Christians or overly fancy. While we want to learn from you ways that you teach us to pray, the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, etc., I just pray that you'd help us to talk to you. 
Give us just enough inner fortitude to overcome the hump of overthinking about the, me- the mechanisms of prayer, the, the, how it all works. Free us from the distraction. Help us to see distraction and anxiety as it is. Help us to be awake and alive to you and not just awake to our problems and asleep to you. And Lord Jesus, as we receive Holy Communion today, I pray that in a special way you just pour out your spirit on us and nourish us like a good meal when your body is just hungry for nutrients. May we feast on the person of Jesus Christ. May his life fill our life. And would you make us together, Lord Jesus, magnanimous people, gentle people, quick to overlook an offense, not quick to outrage. For in schools, in the drop-off and the pickup line at school, in our work, in our retirement, in our leisure, in all of our joys and our fears, would you be with us and expand our thoughts about you and help us to be great-souled and magnanimous toward one another. Lord, we confess our need of you, and we're just banking on your provision. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.